This is part two of Presidential Power Brokers from America's Heartland, where we look at the state of Iowa and its outsized role in catapulting Republican and Democratic presidential candidates to party nomination by winning their respective Iowa caucuses. In our first segment, we looked at the power broker process through the eyes of Iowans themselves. With respect to the current Democratic race for president, on the issues, was impeachment a hot topic among Iowans? Not so much. So the farm economy is really a big thing, the tariffs and factory farms versus family farms, that sort of thing. Iowans seemed much more focused on farming and... I think health care has really come out as a big issue. And just jobs in general. People are just worried about having jobs and, and being able to keep them. Iowans are also keen on whether a Democratic candidate has... Electability. I think that's an issue that's very important. And uh, defeating Trump, they're making sure that we have a strong candidate to do so. On how they select a candidate to support, Iowans are thorough. They will often go to several events, meet many of the candidates, and as Nick Anderson said... Bullshit radar. You know, like, we know when people are not being authentic or not being real. Finally, Iowan Sandy Bass says this. Their staff makes a big impression. You know, how, how good their staff is. I, I, I kind of have a feeling that staff is a reflection of the candidate. And so um, a, a candidate that has really good staff that's really on it, that um, is something I take notice of. And that brings us to today's episodes where we look at those presidential staffers who descend upon Iowa every four years and the experiences in Iowa of the candidates they seek to elect. Let's just pause on the monologue and have a conversation. I'd like you to welcome Nicole to the stage. Uh, we have questions gathered up from the audience. She's going to be your voice. Uh, come on up, Nicole. That is current presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg inviting Iowa staffer Nicole up to the stage to pose questions to him from the audience at a town hall in last fall in Ames, Iowa. Elisa reports stating, there is no evidence supporting the existence of a decoupling of economic growth from environmental pressures. Should a model of sufficiency be used along with increased efficiency in our climate plan? Uh, uh, if we're serious She is the staffer that Sandy Bass is talking about that she interacts with. And that staffer is only 22. This is her first job out of college. She also happens to be my daughter. But before there was Nicole in Iowa, there was Sasha Owen. With your help, I will take my own values of faith and family to the presidency to build an America that is not only better off, but better. And that is why today I announce that I am a candidate for president of the United States. Back in 1999, Bill Clinton's vice president, Al Gore, announced for president. Unfortunately for Gore, so did Democratic New Jersey Senator Bill Bradley. We didn't grow corn or wheat here in Crystal City. We made glass. Today, I want to be as clear as that glass about who I am and why I'm running for president of the United States. So 22-year-old Sasha stopped waiting tables, yes, stopped waiting tables, and took a job with the vice president's campaign in Iowa, and here was her first week on the job. I arrived in Iowa, it was the week of the Jefferson Jackson dinner. 
And all of a sudden, I'm given, like you said, 22-year-old kid, you know, I did waitressing in New York, my first real job out of college, and I'm given this high-level security pin, which meant that I could be as close to the vice president as anybody else. I'm given a earpiece with a wire that goes down my shirt so I can, you know, speak via walkie-talkie, you know, into my wrist. I'm told to go, you know, work with Secret Service and something called WACA, which is White House Communications. I had no idea what that meant. Is this what our founding fathers envisioned for our democracy? Young kids fresh out of school, wet behind the ears, so close to our next possible presidents they can actually touch them while spinning the most important voters in the American electorate, the Iowa caucus voter? Here's Nicole recalling the breakfast we had in Iowa before her first day on the Buttigieg campaign. I remember we told the, uh, the, the person who was serving us that uh, you're going to be working with uh, Pete's campaign. Yeah, I remember. Remember what she said? I actually don't remember what she said. She said she'd never heard of him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I had to spell it out for her. I don't think I even knew how to really <laughs> spell it at that point. I had to, like, discreetly Google my boss's name. Yeah. Listen to Sasha again about her readiness week one. I'm told to go, you know, work with Secret Service and something called WACA, which is White House Communications. I had no idea what that meant. Is American democracy doing something wrong here? Maybe not. Meet Sarah Payton. Two years ago, she was the political director for New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's re-election campaign. Heady stuff. I'm getting ready to do something too. I'm running for president. But just two years before that, she was headed out to Iowa. I went out uh, with 48 hours notice. To do field work for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. Today, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders kicked off his campaign for president. He's a long shot. A long shot. I don't think he's going to be taken too credibly. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. You may remember that Hillary was up against little-known Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders at that time. Three young women working on three different presidential campaigns in Iowa at three different times in our nation's history. And do these young staffers and their interactions with Iowa voters make our democracy stronger or weaker? It turns out that Iowa staffers work incredibly hard. Here's Sasha. I lived in West Des Moines, Iowa. I lived in an apartment with, I think, four, maybe more other, other women who were working on the campaign. I, I bunked up, shared a room with another person. And, and it was, and, and so you were never home. Like, you know, you worked 20 hour days. You were hardly in that apartment. You were, you, you, you rented. And Nicole. Working with your campaign staffers and doing this grunt work, really, you know, canvassing out in the snow and uh, going to events like the steak fry and the LJ dinner. Take a listen to a day in the life of Sasha on the campaign trail for Vice President Al Gore in 1999. So one, job of the advanced team is to be what's called the RON, which is the acronym R-O-N, which, which stands for Remain Overnight. So whenever the vice president would be staying in a city all over the country every night, a new place, someone's responsibility on the advanced team was to prepare everything for that day, which is not just booking a hotel room, right? It's rooms for staff. It's rooms for Secret Service. It's rooms for White House communications who had to 
set up secure phone lines every single place the vice president went. And another responsibility of this job, which which was mine for for a while, I really kind of master this role of the Ron, was to take all of the incoming briefing book that would come throughout the night as well as news clips that would start coming in around four o'clock in the morning. So you would stay up all night long and there was a fax machine, you know, we had fax machines back then. And we would, I would get just paper and paper and paper, all this stuff being faxed to me. And I would have to take that briefing book, organize it into a binder for the vice president. I'd have to make multiple copies for, you know, different members of his team. And I would leave them outside of everyone's door so that in the morning when they woke up, they had these briefing books. Then the the news clips would come in, you know, again, starting maybe four o'clock in the morning or so. And I would have to organize those as well. And there was a a method that they liked to review the clips. You know, you would dog ear, you know, certain mentions. You would highlight other mentions. And again, I would would make those packets for the vice president and for his team. And, and again, it's just one of these experiences where you're, you know, sort of this young, out-of-college person, and you're given this responsibility of organizing and, and preparing this, like, important material for the Vice President of the United States. So it was, it was exhausting, and I literally would not sleep. I'd stay up all night long, and then, of course, the next day I'd be on all day having to work. Of course, there are some perks working for a Vice President that say one doesn't have working for the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Like hopping aboard the vice president's plane, Air Force Two. I never flew on Air Force Two, but I repeatedly, multiple times, I went on Air Force Two. And sometimes if we we had time and there was a big lag between the luggage being ready, um, I'd go on Air Force Two and, and, you know, the staff there would let me go up. And a couple of times they would let me um, sit in the vice president's chair uh, on Air Force Two, and I could use the phone, and I would call my dad from the plane um, and say hi. And they also U- had using a, using the vice president's phone, or using the vice president's phone. I, I hope I'm not like you know reaching some horrible thing, telling everyone this, but yes, um, a couple times I would go in, and, and they let me sit there and make a phone call, and I would always call my dad. These staffers were deeply committed to doing anything to getting even one vote in Iowa. There's a farmer who I went and visited and knocked on his doors and he told me he was undecided. And so I went back and I visited him every week. And you'd say like, wow, that's quite the investment into one voter. Um, But in some of the precincts in my counties that I had, you know, people coming out to caucus, you might have 20 people at a caucus at that precinct. It's just such a small precinct. So every voter matters, you know, every vote matters. They say politics is a dirty business, but wait till you hear the rest of Sarah's story. And I went out and he wouldn't talk to me unless I helped him. So I did stuff around the farm with him, typically muck pigs. Um, and muck is a you know, more polite way to say the word shit. And if you are mucking stalls, you're basically putting on some big boots and some gloves and going in there and you're, you're sweeping and shoveling you know, um, manure. Um, and so perfect for politics. <laughs> yeah, you're sho- you're literally shoveling shit, um, and you're you're spreading you know fresh hay or whatever's the the base there, typically hay, and then you're letting you know the the animals back in. And it, you know he was um, he was an, this guy was an incredible guy, and he was a physics teacher at the local high school, but woke up and um, would tend his cows 
and his pigs and his chickens and, I mean, just all these animals on his farm and then would go and work a full day as a teacher and then come back and do the same at night and then go to bed and do it all over again. And I'll say that's something that I really learned about Iowans when I was out there. That is a hard-working group of people. Nicole had a cleaner version to get caucus votes for Mayor Pete Buttigieg. So there's this guy in Ames, and, and he'd been very involved with the campaign long before I ever got to, before I ever, before I got to Iowa. And so he, he emailed us, you know, asking to be a precinct captain. So I, I'm like, all right, let me meet with you. And I was sort of, it was my first time meeting the guy, and uh, I was super excited, but also super nervous. I know he's sort of famous, well-known around Ames. So he tells me to go to, co to, go to this address, um, and so I pull up to his, to his house, but I don't really see a house. All I see is a farm. And I think I'm in the wrong place, and you know. But I decide to be bold. One of the rules of the road for Pete's campaign, and I go up to his door and I knock on the door. But I'm looking around and I I hear some some strange animal sounds coming from my left side. Like I look over and there's just there's goats. There's a bunch of goats, and I'm like, oh, that's that's nice. I knock on the door and this guy answers the door, invites me into his home. You know, he says, would you like a tour of the farm? So he gives me a tour of the farm, and all of a sudden, I, you know, he takes me to these to the goat shed, and I'm excited to meet the goats. But seven llamas come out as well, <laughs> and he's like, "Here, you want to feed the llamas?" He gives me some llama feed. <laughs> Before I could say yes or no, these llamas are coming up and, and eating the feed out of my hand, uh, and I haven't been around nature that much, so I didn't really know what to do. Then he says, oh, if you, if you put your cheek out, Bridget will kiss you. So I put my cheek out, Bridget the llama comes up and, and kisses my cheek. I was so thrown off. And then he disappears, he leaves me with the llamas and the goats, and I don't know the etiquette, I don't know what to do, so I just kind of am in the corner with these, like, ten goats and seven llamas just, like, around me waiting for more food. And I felt like I was in the wilderness, and he, he comes over and he has one egg in his hand, and he says, sorry, I just had to go, Lily laid this, do you want to farm fresh egg? <laughs> I was so overwhelmed. Long story short, I got a farm fresh egg, and I got kissed by a llama, and you know, bombarded by 10 goats. I also got a precinct captain out of it, so I met my metrics for the week, but <laughs> it really took a lot more than I, I don't think I, my degree couldn't have prepared me for that. Animals seem to be a hazard for all field organizers, apparently. Here are Sarah and Nicole one more time. On my one day off, um, a week, I went to rural Iowa, uh, eastern, northeastern Iowa, and I was having a really good day, but I ended up staying out a lot later than I was supposed to. And, you know, I was in a very, very rural area, and I will never forget this. I went running out one night in the hailing rain to this far community in the middle of, I mean, we're talking nowhere, nowhere, nowhere. And I went all through this neighborhood, past all these wakes, um, lakes down this gravel road, busting tail to get back to Oskaloosa to be there for our evening, kind of like call and check in into the night, 10 o'clock. So I, so I was driving back at like 11.30 at night, an hour and a half back to Ames, and there's no street lights, and I, like, like you really just don't see anything for miles. Like, you feel like you're in a dream almost. It's very dis disorienting, and so, like, I'm deep in thought, and I, I, all of a sudden I see these two green dots, like, just beyond the, the, the stretch of my, of my headlights. And I was 
coming down and I thought in the hailing rain again, there's cornrows beside me. I'm on a dirt path. I'm in a little tiny red truck and I'm bumpling down this dirt path with my windshield wipers on high. I can hardly see anything and I thought what I saw in front of me was a chicken. But it's like moving. It's like scurrying across the road. And I'm like, oh my God, that's not a reflector or some type of weird light or, you know, whatever. It's, it's an animal. Uh, it was not a chicken. It was a skunk. <laughs> And I hit it straight on. From the positioning of the, of its eyes, of this these what I now realize are eyes, it's it's too big to be a squirrel, but too small to be a deer. And at this point, I don't know what kind of wildlife they have in Iowa. All I all I know is that if that hits my car, uh, I am in trouble. And man, that thing must have sprayed right as I hit it because I got skunked so badly that I couldn't breathe and I couldn't get my windows down fast enough. And it was pretty scary, but I, I still don't know what that animal was. All I know is I, was, I had to swerve out of the way for it. That I literally slammed on my brakes, put the truck in park, and I got out of my car and I was standing there, pitch black. I mean, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I cannot breathe for the skunk smell. Um, my car is completely skunked and it's hailing rain and I thought to myself like what the hell am I doing? You know, like what am I doing? Why am I here and what am I doing? Um, and I remember getting back in my car and just being like this is the craziest shit I've ever done and I don't know if anything will ever surpass it. Do these staffers take it seriously? We already know the Iowa presidential staffers work very hard and can mimic their candidates like Sarah Payton by shoveling manure to get votes when necessary. But it also seems these staffers to Iowa presidential campaigns take as much time to get to know the voter they want to caucus for their candidate as the Iowan takes in selecting a candidate. Here's Sasha. You know, the people, like a, an amazing, the people in, in Iowa were amazing. They were welcoming. They were, you know, they were so used to this every four years caucus experience and um, wanted to be involved, wanted to be part of the campaign, wanted to be civically engaged. And that, I think, was interesting to me. For Nicole, who's from New York, it took a New York minute to adjust to Iowan attitude. They are so nice. It took me off guard, um, honestly. It, you know, I, uh, something called Iowa nice, which is really, uh, really prevalent, honestly. Sarah sounds like she became an Iowa policy expert while she was there. Remember what Sandy Bass said? So farm economy is really a big thing, the tariffs and factory farms versus family farms, that sort of thing. Now listen to Sarah. You know, some farmers would say passing comments about other farmers and you didn't sort of understand it at first, but then you start to learn like, oh, they're throwing shade at that farmer because they didn't, you know, put their cattle out on their field to help aerate the field or they didn't, you know, switch over their uh, soybeans to corn and vice versa because the, the, the nitrates in the ground. I mean, it's really an interesting, uh, you know, fascinating culture out there and something that it was um, a real education and exposure for me. Even NPR plays these. Um, you'll be driving in your car wherever you have to go. You should drive everywhere. And um, NPR will play, you know, the, the latest on the crops and the new bugs and what's, you know, affecting your crops and how you can take care of it. And it's, you know, it's fascinating, really. 
And these Iowa presidential staffers believe deeply in the process they are a part of. It's a wild place, but you you work hard and you earn it and you need to believe in your candidate. I mean, I think that that's the bottom line. I would not advise anyone to go out there and work Iowa without really believing in who they were working for. Sasha puts it this way. You realize the work that you're doing is going to have a huge impact on the entire country. Um, Second, it's incredibly hard work. So you are, you know, again, working seven days a week, 24 hours a day. You're putting your entire life into it. So you build these bonds with your colleagues, and there's just an excitement, an adrenaline rush of being part of something that is so much bigger than you. And you get to be one player in that larger story that is about the future of the country. And for Nicole, currently going through the process right now, so it's still fresh, here are her thoughts. Honestly, it's been probably the most, uh, I don't important or, or uh, relevant educational experience I've ever had. I think for me at least, like I really understand the geographic differences and, and why why we're in this political climate that we're in. For me, this is more than just a professional endeavor or just another stepping stone in my, you know, political career because I really never thought I would have a political career. You know, especially since you're in politics, I never really wanted to, no offense, I never really wanted to go into politics. None taken. <laughs> yeah, um, so it's really helped me understand my country a little bit better. There's a sense of camaraderie that you get from working on a presidential campaign that you, I can't explain it really. It's, you know, working with your campaign staffers, like being part of a movement um, is really wild. So it seems that even though these presidential campaigns entrust young staffers with so much responsibility and connectivity with the most important and critical voting bloc in America, the Iowa caucus voter, and the rest of us in America, in turn, depend upon these young staffers as our proxies to promote our favored candidates. It all makes some sense. By the way, Iowa campaign staffers fuel the future of our government and politics in both parties. Sarah Payton is now a top aide to Governor Cuomo, who... Now I'm actually working for the governor in his federal office doing uh, federal affairs, which is, you know, going back more towards the national where I was prior. And um, it's also a very interesting experience, especially given this administration and all the different uh, things that they're trying to do to alter the way that the, the federal government, you know, works and sort of roll back some of uh, President Obama's policies. And Sasha Owen is chief of staff to New York City controller Scott Stringer. But neither the Iowan nor the campaign staffer would matter at all without the candidate to campaign for. We Democrats like to take credit for running grassroots presidential campaigns. But before Bernie Sanders and his revolution, there was Republican Arkansas Governor Mike Huckabee's presidential campaign in 2008, and then Pennsylvania Senator Rick Santorum four years later. So Big Shot sat down with former Republican Senator Rick Santorum to discuss his presidential campaign in Iowa in 2012. I am proud to stand here among you and for you, the American workers who have sacrificed so much to announce that I am running for president of the United States. 
Nowadays, we see Rick Santorum, who was once the Senate's third-ranking Republican, giving as good as he gets as a political contributor on CNN. This tax cut was to grow the economy, and it was a large tax cut to get economic growth He said it was a middle-class tax cut. And, and a lot of folks in the middle of America are benefiting a lot. I mean, that's Seven the reality. Seven out of every ten cents goes to people like me Remember, and half the people not in the this, struggling middle-class families. Half we the both people know. in this country do not pay federal income taxes. And so it is much harder okay. to provide a federal income tax break to people who don't but pay federal income taxes. Look, I, and eight years ago, Senator Santorum announced for president of the United States. But having lost his re-election for his Pennsylvania Senate seat just four years earlier, even Santorum says, after losing to come back and then run for president, it's not a typical path, I was to say, to, uh, to the presidency. And so I knew I'd be at the back of the path. Like many of the Democratic candidates in the current presidential race who have to tussle with Joe Biden, Rick Santorum was up against a well-known figure in Republican circles to win the Republican primary, Mitt Romney. That's why today I am announcing my exploratory committee for the presidency of the United States. It's time that we put America back on a course of greatness. Other candidates like Speaker Newt Gingrich and Congressman Ron Paul were also in the race. And while we voters sit at home every four years as spectators watching this presidential race, Senator Santorum set out in earnest to win the race and the Iowa caucuses in 2012. In the comfort of our homes, we see the presidential candidates all the time dropping into a neighborhood diner in Iowa to meet with a handful of voters, or speaking at a jammed pack event like the Jefferson Jackson Dinner, now called the Liberty Justice Dinner. But Senator Santorum tells us this is what really happens. I did, uh, when it was all said and done in Iowa, I did 381 or 82 town hall meetings and speeches in, in that year's time. And obviously I was not just campaigning in Iowa, I was campaigning heavily in New Hampshire, heavily in South Carolina. Obviously, I spent some time at home. So imagine 385 and, and certainly less than, you know, half of the year or, you know, even substantially less than that probably was there maybe two or two or three months total as far as days. So, you know, you're packing a lot of time during the day, uh, you know, going from event to event. And, and we calculated that the average attendance at our at our town hall meetings was probably 12 to 15 people. And there were many events. I mean, there was one event in, uh, I'll never forget it, in Montgomery County, Iowa. One person showed up. But if you keep working and your message resonates with the Iowa voters, things can turn around and turn around dramatically. The press and my opponents actually never saw us coming. And, and I think this is the case that's going on in the Democratic primary right now is, you know, you're not raising any money and, and you know, I, we just, you know, we're not going to waste our vote on you. We like you. We think it'd be great, but, you know, you're not, you can't win. And that's, as I, as I was low in the polls and wasn't raising a lot of money, everybody was sort of dismissing me. But we were doing something that I think, I, you know, maybe one or two candidates in the Democratic field are doing right now. And what happened to me is, enough people disqualified other candidates for one reason i say well he can't win but we're still going to vote for him and because we like him better than all the other candidates and that happened about two or three weeks before uh before the 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 election and we started to go from two or three or four percent or five percent up to seven eight nine ten percent and once we hit ten percent we actually became in third place and that's when the surge happened 
This is perhaps the strategy already deployed by current Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg in Iowa, where he started with low poll numbers and is now considered one of the frontrunners. And in the last two weeks, maybe Amy Klobuchar could pull off what Rick Santorum did when he ran in 2012. Here is Senator Santorum. The following Wednesday, another poll came out, had us at 15. And that weekend, they had us at also at, I think, 16, the weekend before the Sunday before the Des Moines Register had me at 16. But what they said was they pulled the whole week, and I was at 12 on Monday and 21 on Friday. And that's they just they just saw this you know late surge just every day picking up and that can happen. Uh, it doesn't happen often. It happened to me. And John Kerry had had a similar experience. Uh, sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. Rick Santorum climbed all the way up to the top of the polls, and as they came to caucus day on January third, twenty twelve, well, remember that one person at that town hall that Rick Santorum had. And this is the beauty of Iowa. One person showed up, turned out to be the county chair. And long story short, we spent the morning together, just the two of us. In the end, she ended up endorsing me and, and helping me, and I won Montgomery County, Iowa. So there you go. Rick Santorum ultimately was declared the winner of the Iowa caucuses by 34 votes, in large part because what that one person did for him at that town hall. Romney was initially declared the winner of the Iowa caucuses blunting much-needed momentum for Santorum's remarkable upstart presidential campaign, and Romney ultimately won the Republican nomination. But Rick Santorum's remarkable presidential campaign soldiered on past Iowa, winning many primaries and caucuses after Iowa, and he was the last candidate standing before ultimately conceding to Mitt Romney. How did he do it? I've always been a grassroots candidate. When I when I first ran for Congress back in 1990, you know, 30 years ago, I I, I knocked on 20,000 doors, and uh, you know, did coffees and you you know, I mean, we just had it was a whole. I spent less than 250 thousand dollars and got elected to Congress. I mean, even back then, that was nothing. Every race I've ever run, it's always been very volunteer oriented, very grassroots oriented. I just believe that's the way you run a campaign and. And, and I knew that I wouldn't have a lot of money. In the end, you know, I won the Iowa caucuses. I mean, I just saw Bernie Sanders' numbers of $34 million in the quarter. I didn't raise $34 million in the entire year and a half I campaigned. In fact, I raised less, almost half that. It's funny, you hear the press talk about, oh, you know, uh, Buttigieg and Klobuchar are running grassroots campaigns. Oh, I mean, they all raised more money to date, more than I raised when I, when, for my entire campaign. And I ran in 30-some states, and I, I had primaries in 30 states into April. So we spent less than a million dollars to win the Iowa caucuses. I don't think anybody's going to ever do that again. We had a messenger that was willing to go out there and work. We, we ended up not getting declared the winner until two weeks later. But we kept scratching and clawing, ended up winning 10 more primaries, just didn't get there. Despite the resentment by many of us who don't live in Iowa at the important role Iowa and Iowans play in selecting each party's presidential nominees, our big shot candidates Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, who were around at the start of our country, would probably defend the Iowa caucus. They might say the Iowa caucus might be a subconscious way for America to keep its presidential selection process intimate even when we've grown from 13 colonies to 50 states and 126 million people voting for president. The Iowa caucus starts off the presidential process, 
where no matter how rich you are or how little known you may be, to win an Iowa caucus, you have to do town halls and go into the home of everyday voters and ask for their vote. Iowa is a process where the voter meets several of the candidates in person before deciding whom she or he wants to vote for. And the presidential staffs in Iowa are believers in their candidate, their country, and the future in the way that seems to energize the entire process. Simply put, in Iowa, it isn't about who has the glitzy commercial or the soundbite. It seems like it is about connecting with the voter with the right message and the right staffs and having just about the right amount of luck. Isn't that honestly how the start of a presidential selection process should begin? Oh, by the way, who does Rick Santorum think has the best shot in Iowa of our big shot candidates? Particularly Palin and Roosevelt and, and Trump are all populist type candidates. You know, give one of those three as the favorite in the race. And who would Sasha like to work for if she had to go back to Iowa and do it again? I would go with Barack Obama. And Sarah Payton? You know, I mean, there's a, there's a couple that I can imagine, but I would have to pick out of all of them Eleanor Roosevelt. Thanks to our special guests, Senator Rick Santorum, Nicole King, Sasha Owen, and Sarah Payton. This is your host, Charlie King. See you next time.